There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, Benjamin from The Nature Podcast here. Something a bit different this week. We're going to take a bit of a dive into some of the stories that have appeared in The Nature Briefing over the past few days and weeks. And joining me to do so in this episode of the podcast are Nick Petrich. How? Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? I am doing A-OK. Thank you very much. And also joining us is Sharmini Bundell. Sharmini, hi. Hello. I'm very excited. All three of us are once discussing science. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's a rarity, isn't it? Well, let's crack on then. Nick, do you want to go first this week? What have you got? I certainly can go first. So I've been looking into a couple of things that are sort of climate change related. And well, the first one is very much related. There was a paper that came out in Nature that's been assessing how well we're going to do with climate change based on the promises made at COP26. And I was reading about this in the BBC News. And COP26 was the most recent one in Glasgow. Yes, COP26 was the most recent one last year in November. And this was a big one because it was five years on, well, actually six years because of COVID, from the Paris talks. And so this was a time where countries were supposed to be ratcheting up their promises and sort of pushing the boat out a bit further. Yeah, and a bunch of promises were made and you talked about them on the podcast at the time. So this paper then is sort of breaking them down and looking at what will happen as a result of them. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the paper basically looks at what were the promises made, how they sort of improve on the Paris promises and where that might leave us. And the headline is, we can keep things under two degrees C if all of the promises and pledges are completely fulfilled. And that will get us to around 1.9 to 2 degrees C, according to the analysis. And 1.5 degrees, has that now been left and, and 2 degrees is the next sort of benchmark that we're aiming for? Yeah, well, sadly, there's slightly more pessimistic news on that because they did an analysis of how likely we are to get to 1.5 degrees as well. And based on what countries have pledged our chances of getting there are around 6 to 10%. So most likely we're going to overshoot 1.5 degrees. And the question is now, like, how much we're going to overshoot it by and whether we can actually bring it back down if we do so. I mean, Nick, you said the paper's looking at what would happen if everyone stuck to their commitments. I think that word if is doing an awful lot of heavy lifting. It certainly is because the getting it down below 2 degrees relies on every country sticking to every promise that they've made. And so, yeah, there's quite a big if there. And it really relies on, as well, the sort of short-term goals. So that's 
up to 2030. So you've probably heard that emissions need to peak basically now. So what's actually happening, according to analyses, is emissions are going to go up by 13% up to 2030. And that's not really the direction we need to be moving in. So they really need to go down by 45% if we want to try and get those more ambitious targets like 1.5 degrees. But as the analysis says, it's still possible to get under two degrees. So where does that leave the next steps in terms of climate change? Well, it feels like the same sort of thing I say every time we do a climate change story, and that's that we need action and we need it quicker. Countries need to fulfil their pledges and they need even more aggressive pledges and there needs to be money to make this sort of energy transition especially for middle and lower income countries that haven't really contributed to climate change but will bear the brunt of the consequences of it but thinking about sort of solutions the other story that i was looking at this week was about a potential way to get energy that has been stored and efficiently store energy and do so in sort of like a clean way. Oh, that's very mysterious. What kind of uh, energy storage are you talking about? So I've been looking into what are called thermophotovoltaics. And this was a paper that was again in Nature and was covered in Science. Right. Well, pray tell then, what is a thermophotovoltaic? What does it do? Well, that is a very good question. And to sort of give you the answer, I need to give you a bit of background. So when we're thinking about the energy transition, one of the key things is thinking about storage of energy because you need to store energy from renewables when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And you can use batteries for that, but they tend to store energy for only a short amount of time and are quite expensive. If you need to store it for a long amount of time, there are other things, and that's where these thermophotovoltaics come in. So what you can do is you can heat up a large mass to ultra-high temperatures, and then you can tap into that when you need the energy. And the way you can tap into that, or one way at least, is using these thermophotovoltaics. And the photo part of these thermophotovoltaics is that what you do is you heat up a metal to very high temperatures so that it glows like a light bulb. And then you use these thermophotovoltaics to sort of capture that energy in a similar sort of way as solar cells work. Oh, so they're turning heat into light and then using that light to generate electricity. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And this is a way that you can actually store surplus energy from renewables. The problem has been that since around the 1980s, the efficiency has been stuck around 30%. And this is quite an expensive thing to do. So it's not high enough, really, to actually make these things workable in reality. But now, in this new paper, they've got it up to 41% the efficiency. And they've done it in quite a clever way. Yeah, so to get over a 10% jump or at once Um, I feel like they must have been being uh, quite creative what was their solution so they've done something that's quite different from previous work in this area so typically the way these things will work is they'll heat up something called an emitter which is emitting the light up to 1400 degrees because this is the temperature at which the light coming out of this emitter is the best wavelength to be sort of captured by the thermophotovoltaics What they've done instead is they've gone a thousand degrees higher and they've heated up tungsten to 2400 degrees C. Now, the reason this hasn't been done in the past is because there's a much broader spectrum of light that's emitted at this temperature. 
But what they've done is they've changed the thermophotovoltaic so it can capture a much broader range of different wavelengths of light. And then they also put a layer of gold on the bottom which reflected photons that couldn't be absorbed back into the metal so that energy wasn't lost. Ah, so it can work at a higher temperature and absorb more of the wavelengths of light. Therefore, it works at a, at a higher efficiency then. Yeah, that's exactly how it's working. And they've actually got ideas as well to get it up to 50% because in 2020 in Nature, there was a paper about a mirror that was able to reflect like 99% of infrared photons. And they reckon they could actually incorporate this mirror into their design and get that efficiency above 50%. And then hopefully we'll basically be able to use this to make the use of renewable energy much more efficient because we can now store it. That's the idea. So previous work has suggested that you need to get these to around 35% efficiency to make the technology economically viable. This one's looking at 41%, so theoretically should be economically viable. And the researchers involved have launched companies that are trying to get into this space and trying to set up this endeavour. So maybe we'll hear more about thermophotovoltaics in the future. Nice. Well, that's a great story. Thank you, Nick. Let's keep going around. Shalmini, would you like to go next? I would love to. How do we feel about leeches on the Nature podcast? I've only ever seen them in films, I guess. Yeah, normally treating some sort of medieval ailment. Is that where we're going with this one? No. This is the leeches out there helping conservationists monitor animals. I should say this is an article in Science News that I've been reading. I love leeches. I'd like to put in a small plug for how fantastic leeches are. And I might have enjoyed the job in a national park in China where they basically sent out a load of park rangers and people to hunt for and collect as many leeches as possible uh, as a way to monitor how the wildlife in the park was doing. Ah, So when you said that the leeches were helping conservationists, they weren't going out with a clipboard then and counting the different species (laughs) in, in this area? No. The researchers wanted to find out if they could use blood from inside leeches to figure out what the leeches had been eating and actually collect DNA from different species around the park just via the leeches. So a kind of a a proxy count of the different species that were there. Yeah, and this sort of idea, so it's called environmental DNA. So it's kind of like, let's monitor the DNA from the environment. In this case, it's leeches. But the story references another paper from earlier this year where researchers were trying to test it out, essentially using little vacuums to try and like suck DNA out of the air. (laughs) They were testing it in a zoo to see if they could figure out like how much DNA they could get, where the DNA was floating about. You can do it in the sea as well. You can get DNA from seawater to find out what animals have been around. And it's obviously much easier than going out and trying to find all these animals directly. You know, you don't need camera traps, which only kind of work on the big animals. You don't need to have sort of trained up loads of people to try and spy and identify the species because you can get the DNA uh, from the leeches. Well, it seems like a really fascinating way to get DNA from animals. And what was it able to tell the researchers about this park? Well, in this particular instance, one of the things that they noticed was in the high altitude interior of this park, the leeches were eating a much higher proportion of sort of biodiversity and wild species, as opposed to close to the edges of the park, they were feeding more on sort of like domestic sheep and cattle and goats. Now, the wildlife of the park ideally should be able to you know, live anywhere in it. So this could suggest to the people running the park that actually human activity is disturbing the creatures and pushing them away 
from certain areas. So perhaps that that could be useful information for them to try and address that. And Shamini, do you think we're going to see leeches uh, taking a bigger role in uh, kind of environmental censuses as we move forward? I hope so. I would like to be interviewing leech scientists on the podcast, ideally, (laughs) leech conservationists. I think this is the first time this has been done. So I think it's all a little bit experimental as with the other sort of vacuuming DNA out of the air idea. But it's definitely... Another piece in the toolkit of conservationists that could be useful in monitoring wildlife around the world. That is a fascinating proof of concept of how to use leeches in this sort of science, Shamini. But Ben, you've been quite quiet so far this week. Do you have a couple of stories for us? Oh, do I? And the first one, let's stick in the kind of animal world. And I've got one about how acoustic communication has shifted and specifically shifted in some fish that live in underground caves in Mexico. And this was a paper that was in Nature Communications, and I read about it in New Scientist. When you say acoustic communications, are these just the sounds the fish are making and these have changed? Wait, do fish make sounds? Is that a thing? Fish make a lot of sounds, particularly bony fish. (sighs) But uh, I think what hasn't necessarily been well understood is how these sounds do evolve, do change. And this story particularly looks at a group of fish called Mexican tetra. Now, these are small fish that grow to about 10 centimetres long, give or take. And there's kind of two forms, two groups, I would say. One lives outside in rivers. It's got good vision. You know, it's got lots of colours. It swims about, all the rest of it. And the other lives in these cave systems in Mexico. And they are translucent. And they've lost their eyes as well because they're in the dark all the time. And they've evolved a number of ways to survive in these kind of food-poor areas. We've covered it in the podcast in the past. And these adaptions evolved later on. But not much was known about the way they chat, I guess. And so <laughs> these researchers have been looking at these two different groups of fish and see how, yeah, how, how their fish chats differs. How do you listen to a fish? <laughs> you use a lot of time in the lab with a microphone. So these researchers behind this work recorded dozens of hours of the, the different fish. And it turns out that tetrafish make six quite distinct noises right but one of them in particular that they looked at in this paper was this kind of sharp click sound okay now the fish that live overground in the rivers they use this well when things are getting a bit aggressive but for the fish that live in the cave system they make the same noise but they actually use it while they're foraging for food so totally different and the fish will act in different ways if they hear it the overground fish they'll emit it when there's another fish in their tank or if they hear it their behavior will change but the cave fish if they hear this noise other fish will come towards them they're like oh there must be some foraging going on some food and what keeps going with this work is they then looked at specifically these underground fish and in the different cave system and saw that the noises that they made were similar but different they had kind of different accents <laughs> as well i'm imagining some of these fish with like a cockney accent some of them with like a brummy <laughs> accent maybe some with like a southern drawl from the u.s is it that's the sort of thing we're getting it might be slightly hard to make those kind of differentiations but what they did find the researchers was that one of these groups the clicks were kind of deep and booming another they were kind of pitched a bit higher so there's a lot going on there and, and this all seems to have happened kind of independently because these different populations live say in different cave systems that aren't necessarily linked. So languages sort of diverge naturally and the same kind of thing is happening in evolution. Is that what they think is happening here or is it something more driven, this process? Well, a lot of questions, Shelmy, to answer about this one. I think in the article I read, they were saying that they think it's kind of genetic drift, so just random chance that might be driving this. But it's the first time that it's been seen. And of course, the two different groups of fish live in very, very different areas. So it could actually give an insight into if there is a drive, how communication does evolve 
over time. And, and they say that potentially this could be involved in speciation. One of the authors says that maybe in time, over you know millions of years, the communication would drifted so far apart that the different groups won't be able to understand each other anymore. You know, what I really want now is to interview a tetrafish on the podcast. <laughs> Did not know that they could talk. Well, listen, I think we've got time for one more. And let's go to a story that's about as far away from that as I think it's possible to get. Okay, now this is something that I read about in Live Science. And it centers on a small meteorite that hit the Earth's atmosphere in January 2014. Now, it was only maybe half a meter across or so, but it might have come from a very, 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 very long way away. <laughs> there were a lot of berries there, and I was about to say <laughs> stuff hits the Earth all the time. What's so important about this one? But I'm guessing it's one of the berries. Yes. Yeah, so let's fast forward then to 2019. And a couple of researchers wrote up a paper and put it on the preprint archive server where they kind of analysed the flight path of this meteorite. And apparently they've estimated it was going at more than 130,000 miles an hour, which is much faster than the average velocity of meteors orbiting within the solar system. And the shape of its orbit as well, it was kind of something they looked at. And they reckon that this suggests that it came from beyond the solar system, maybe somewhere in the distant Milky Way. I read about this one as well, because it's, it's one of the very few objects that we've ever sort of seen that could have come from outside of our solar system so interstellar travel right mm, oh, 100% and if this is confirmed it would be the first identified interstellar object putting it before the cigar-shaped Oumuamua which was discovered in 2017 and something we definitely covered on the podcast and we'll put it before 2i Borisov this rogue comet that was discovered a couple of years back but one thing you said there was that this hit the Earth in 2014. How come we're only hearing about it now? Well, the paper was put up on the archive in 2019, but there's a bit of a gap in it, Nick. And this is where the story takes a bit of a turn. So this work hasn't been peer-reviewed or published yet. And the reason for that seems to be that some of the key verifying data was apparently considered classified by the US government so they weren't able to put that in the paper i mean i really want to just say aliens now that makes me immediately think <laughs> aliens <laughs> is that what this is ben is this aliens i don't think so nick i mean i think we probably would have led with that story if it were <laughs> so i actually read an article in vice about this story um and it was basically saying that some of the sensors that are detecting the sort of fireballs that, that come to earth are operated by the u.s department of defense and they're using the technology to look for nuclear detonations. But that's why some of the data is basically classified. And there's a quote in this Vice article with the uh, researchers trying to get the US government to kind of confirm the data. Um, and they've quoted the researcher describing it as a whole saga. Um, and it actually took several years of sort of bureaucracy for them, to, for them to get this. Yeah. And fast forward to just a few weeks ago, when the US Space Command, which is, I believe is, is part of the US Department of Defense, did release a memo confirming the researchers' findings. But there was no data in this memo, as far as I could see. And the paper hasn't been peer-reviewed, as I say. So I think there's still a healthy amount of scepticism about whether this meteorite was the first identified interstellar object. But I guess only time will tell when the scientific process continues. Well, let's call it there then for this special briefing chat edition of The Nature Podcast. We'll put links to all of those stories in the show notes so listeners you can have a read of them if you'd like to and if you'd like even more stories like this delivered directly to your inbox then don't forget to sign up for the nature briefing and we'll put a link on how you can do that as well 
There's also just time to mention that one of our episodes has been nominated for a Webby and we need your help to win it as a public vote. And we'll put a link of where you can do that in the show notes as well. Yeah, voting closes very, very soon. And it would be amazing if you'd cast your vote for us. So that's all for this week. And I think all that remains is to say, Nick Petrichow and Shalmini Bundell, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Ben. See you soon. Thanks. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.